0: This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello and welcome to our final bonus episode of Season 2. As always, I'm your host Avery Krywold with Innovating a Bright Future. Today is our final episode of Season 2 and it has been a fantastic season so far. Before we actually get into the bulk of our episode on carbon markets, I'm going to do a conclusion to Season 2 and introduce you to the next season of the show. First of all, thank you so much for sticking with the show and continuing to support us. Personally, I have learned so much from Season 2, and it has really opened up my mind to the potential that can be found in the field of sustainable technology and renewable energy. Most of all, even though it was only focused on for a couple of episodes, the importance of agriculture in mitigating climate change has been emphasized, and it's definitely something to consider for a future career. I hope you've learned something from this season, and maybe you found a way to focus on your own impact or start your own research project on something related to climate change or sustainability. As with the end of season 1, we won't flow straight into the next season, there will be a few months of hiatus until we return to the regular weekly episodes, and that break is simply for time off from creating the show because it is incredibly time intensive. It also allows us to get ahead in production so that when we begin Season 3, we can ensure that we are able to release exactly how many episodes we want to without having to scramble week to week to try and find content for that episode. As for what Season 3 will entail, it's been pretty clear that you are ready for a change from the individual interview episodes, so I'm excited to announce that for Season 3, we will be attempting an interconnected story arc over the course of a season, which will follow the transformation of the Icelandic nation through their transition to widespread renewable energy and their universal pursuit of sustainability. In the meantime, we will still be producing content here and there. To keep up with everything Innovating a Bright Future, I would recommend you start with following at least one of our social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn, and I would actually recommend that you subscribe to our email newsletter as well because while we aren't producing any weekly episodes, we will be sending out a couple of email series about climate technology and all that fun stuff. I think that's everything I had to talk about before we get into the episode, so let's get going. So since the episode with Olia and frost methane, I've been promising you a bonus episode on carbon markets And we thought it was a good idea to go out on a high note and finish up the season with a bonus episode Let's start by defining a carbon market a carbon market also known as a carbon trading system or cap-and-trade Is a concept that commodifies carbon which basically turns carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions in general not just carbon into a measurable currency with value of its own. We'll go deeper into the specifics in a couple of minutes, but it's an economic system that is designed to mitigate climate change by limiting greenhouse gas emissions in a specific area to a set limit, and then charging those who emit more than their fair share with a fine. It also ultimately rewards those companies who emit less greenhouse gases than their fair share by giving them more money to continue being sustainable. So how did we arrive at the conclusion that carbon markets were even an option to deal with climate change? Well in researching this episode I came across a very in-depth paper on the history of carbon markets that even goes into the history of climate science and how we found out that humans are contributing to what we now call climate change. This paper is admittedly a bit of a long read. It's published by the Center for Climate Change Economics and Policy and the Grantham Research Institute. But I do recommend that if you want to learn a bit more and go farther back in history, you check it out. It'll be in the show notes. So, as established in that paper, scientific concern for the planet's equilibrium, especially in the atmosphere, has been around for centuries. Even in the 1600s, scientists were speculating on how the energy from the sun affected what happened on Earth. Throughout the years, those concerns continue to materialize in different ways, from advanced weather research in the Cold War alongside the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s. Sometimes these concerns were well-founded. We eventually figured out that greenhouse gases trap energy from sunlight inside our atmosphere, and that contributes to an average warming effect and other impacts of climate change. Sometimes we were way off, like during World War II and the Cold War, when we suspected we might be dealing with a new ice age soon. As we know, that's not how it happened. In any case, we eventually did figure it out, and from the 70s on, we had a pretty good idea of what climate change was and how humans were contributing to it. And now I have to caveat this brief history of carbon markets by saying that this particular paper that I'm citing now is an American paper that focuses on American history with carbon markets, and we'll touch on the international side of things in just a minute here. Within a decade of its establishment, the Environmental Protection Agency in the US began to experiment with what we now call carbon credits. They established some localized programs wherein certain substances such as lead were regulated. They then allowed private organizations to come to agreements on how they could avoid that regulation, basically. One of the first instances of this was when lead-infused fuels were being down-regulated. Instead of cracking down hard on companies who didn't comply, If a company whose fuels did comply made an agreement with one whose didn't, often trading market shares or cold hard cash to make the arrangement, the lead content of the fuels would be averaged out and the average between the complying and non complying companies would then fit under the regulation and they would both be allowed to continue regular operation. This was intended to give non-compliance companies a chance to innovate out of their situation And failing that, disallow them from selling products without outright dismantling their company. However, these companies found a loophole and they wasted no time in exploiting it, ultimately, changing nothing and ignoring the regulation. Not all of these projects work out this terribly, but as you'll see as we move on, it's a bit of foreshadowing for where this system could be going in the future. As I said, we're going to talk about the international side of things now. So, on the global scale, in 1972, the UN convened the Conference on the Human Environment in order to discuss and find solutions to the problems of sulfur dioxide and chlorofluorocarbon pollution, wrecking water sources and atmospheric ozone simultaneously. This was one of the first times that pollution was recognized as an international problem and established as a cooperative effort to solve, even though at this time there was no concrete goal or framework of action. Throughout the coming years, the UN would meet and discuss such topics several more times before the Helsinki Protocol was agreed upon in 1985, which mandated a 30% decrease in sulfur emissions by 1993 for the entire world. Now, this was kind of exciting because it was the first time a concrete climate-related goal was stated at such an international level. Two years later, nations around the world would also agree to the Montreal Protocol which, along with giving previous blanket statements like reduce chlorofluorocarbons, a concrete outline on how much they had to be reduced, by when and how it should be done, it also for the first time allowed countries to transfer their emissions quotas of now internationally regulated gases onto other countries. At this point, although the Montreal Protocol did succeed in certain aspects of its purpose, emissions trading was certainly not one of them because the program lacked any real emissions accounting, trading unaccounted for emissions was pretty pointless. Now, this is one of the biggest problems that we see in climate change, carbon markets, and just generally initiating change on a large scale in relation to the environment. Like Guile said in my episode with Mission Zero Technologies, and as stated several times in this particular paper, emissions are externalities. They don't fit into the typical economic or social models. They are similar to forests in that way. They aren't a commodity or a product because, as important as they may be, private organizations, which, as we know, hold an incredible amount of power in our world today, have next to no reason to pay for emissions reductions or protect forests. In many cases, it's the opposite. There are more reasons to emit more greenhouse gases or knock down more forests than it is to not do those things. And they can't be relegated to the responsibility of the consumer or the general public because on such a large scale, when corporations hold so much power, there is little that the public can do to physically and immediately act on emissions or forestry. That's why the concept of a carbon footprint simply doesn't work. And by the way, the concept of a carbon footprint was brought about by oil giant BP in order to shift the blame of climate change back to the consumer. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't look at our own actions. I think it's very important to be aware of how you're impacting the world, and how you can change to lessen that impact. That's a very important thing to do, and everyone should do that as much as they possibly can. However, I am saying that it was designed as a distraction from the systemic problems that we are facing, By allowing fossil fuel companies, alongside companies in basically every other sector, to wield enough power to manipulate policy and governments at the highest level, allowing themselves to continue emitting greenhouse gases on a large scale, even though, by and large, the public is aware of the dangers of climate change, why it's happening, and how to stop it. For years, harmful emissions have sat safely outside the view of large corporations, especially those reliant on fossil fuels. That is how they want it to stay, if at all possible, which is why they've tried to use methods like the carbon footprint to shift blame away from them. As we're going to discuss, there are problems with carbon markets, lots of problems, but the sentiment behind carbon markets, putting a price on the externality of pollution, is something that we absolutely must do in order to move in the right direction for climate change. So anyway, after the Montreal Protocol was put in place, life continued to go on around the world, with climate change for the most part existing in the background, with some rudimentary global regulation in place. More agreements would be made, mostly setting out very rudimentary goals reducing this gas or that gas. But finally, in 1992, at the Convention on Environment and Development in Rio, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was established with 152 countries signing on. This was a defining moment for global climate policy and organization, because in the past where climate change was something discussed at some international conventions, the UNFCCC was a body dedicated to acting on climate change. To this day, the UNFCCC represents one of the most effective global collaboratives that is making progress in the field of climate action. From then on, the UNFCCC would experiment with global emissions trading on a small scale until the signing of the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, when a global systems for emissions trading was officially established. As we've discussed before, although the most ambitious at the time The Kyoto Protocol barely provided a framework, and with hardly any actual substance to work with, it ultimately failed in its goals as well. Since Kyoto, the idea of a carbon market on a global scale has continued to float around, and the market established by Kyoto and adjusted in further international agreements has been being utilized since then, it just hasn't worked very well. COP26 in Glasgow in 2021 was quite possibly a breakthrough for the international emissions trading. We went over that entire agreement in a previous bonus episode, but one of its main focus points was the refinement of international carbon trading platforms. Now, since I'm no international politician, and I don't have the prerequisites required to talk in detail about international policy agreements, Let's just say for now that COP26 resulted in more regulations regarding who can create carbon offsets, how much they are worth, and how they are accounted for, and dealing with all three of these underlying issues is fundamentally important to establishing a successful global trading ground for carbon emissions. So what is a carbon trading market? Well, like I said earlier, it's basically a method of turning the externality of emissions, something outside the scope of the economy, into an integral part of the marketplace. There are certain industries such as the concrete industry that actually use carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases as feedstock for products. In cases such as that, carbon dioxide is a commodity. It's being bought and sold for a profit. It's being used for something. That's not the same thing as carbon markets. From here on out, I'm going to be using carbon markets, carbon trading systems, emissions trading, and cap and trade interchangeably. They mean essentially the same thing. I just don't want to have 5,000 instances of carbon markets in the script for this episode. The systems that we've been trying to establish for years rely on the implied worth of these emissions. This means that we have to artificially create value for something that didn't have any value before. This is where the national and international agreements come in because it's where the value comes from. Because we have these agreements in place, every country has been given a specified allowance, if you will, of greenhouse gas emissions. That's how much they're allowed to emit free of consequence. Now, this is a big change already because before we established these systems, the allowance of each country was as much oil and gas as you can find and burn and make it quick. Now, once this allowance is in place, we have our value. Now, to be clear, Carbon dioxide or methane or other greenhouse gases are not the commodity in this market. We are not buying and selling carbon dioxide. We are actually dealing in the right to emit these gases. In some ways, emissions have become the inverse commodity. I know, I'm so financially illiterate, right? I'm sure that's maybe a real thing. There's something that we don't want. The commodity of these marketplaces is the carbon credit, also known as the carbon offset. This carbon credit is the token equivalent to the right to emit a ton of carbon dioxide. So we have our system somewhat in place. There's a maximum amount of greenhouse gases that is allowed to be emitted. Because there is a maximum value placed on each country, that value trickles down. Each province or territory has its own cap, as in cap and trade, and each private business or corporation within that territory is also given an emissions cap. The idea is, when businesses operate, they will now have to remain under that cap of emissions. Every year, their emissions allowance will decrease, because as we know, we must continue decreasing emissions for the next couple decades in order to mitigate climate change. So each year, corporations will have to emit less. Now, if these entities exceed their cap, they are subject to consequences. For businesses, this usually materializes in the form of a hefty fine. We're talking millions or billions of dollars. Whereas at the international level, if a country isn't staying within its allowance, they could be subject to tariffs and trade taxes. And this is where the trade part comes in. Some companies, a lot of companies in fact, will not be able to adhere to their allowance, which is kind of the point. It's not meant to be easy or this wouldn't be effective. Apart from heavily polluting companies, there will also be companies who are carbon negative. These are entities who either have a carbon allowance but are so efficient at reducing emissions that they're not utilizing their entire allowance. Or they could be entities who are actually actively pulling emissions out of the atmosphere. This could be happening through direct air carbon capture, aquatic agriculture, forestry, or any other means of preventing emissions from ever reaching the atmosphere. In both of these cases, these entities generate a carbon credit because they are allowing more emissions to be created while staying under the allowance. So, when heavily polluting companies cannot adhere to their yearly cap, they are able to buy these carbon credits from carbon-negative entities in order to avoid penalties of exceeding their emissions cap. As with most systems like this, I like to do an example to lay out what it looks like in the real world. As always, these are completely made-up numbers, but let's try and get an idea of what it would look like. So say we are a part of Oil & Gas Incorporated, which operates in the fictional country of Canada. The country of Canada will have a yearly allowance of emissions given by the UN. Say that allowance is a billion tons. Made-up numbers, like I said. So the government of Canada has worked out that Oil & Gas Incorporated is allowed to emit a million tons of CO2 this year. And that million tons does account for other greenhouse gases. Everything is calculated in terms of carbon dioxide simply to make the trading easier. But it does include things like methane and nitrous oxide. So if, for instance, I emitted a ton of methane, that would actually equate to 20 tons of carbon dioxide or something like that. Because methane traps more energy than carbon dioxide does. So we're allowed to emit a million tons of CO2 this year. But all of a sudden we get to October and we're like, darn, we continue to burn an ungodly amount of fossil fuels this year, and we're already at a million tons of CO2 with three months to go. Whatever are we going to do? Well, we definitely can't stop operating because then we would have to fire thousands of people and we would stop making money. So we have to continue as it is. When we get to the end of the year, we've emitted a total of 1.4 million tons of CO2. That's 400,000 more than we were supposed to, and we know that if we end the year like this, we will get hit with a huge fine. Fortunately, there's a direct air capture company called Care, spelled C-A-I-R, so clever, I know and they're selling carbon offsets. We also know that there's a new aquatic forestry company called Kelp the Climate that's using kelp forests to pull carbon dioxide from the air and water. All carbon offsets are priced in dollars per tonne of carbon, so we need to buy about 400,000 carbon credits in order to avoid that big fine. So, we approach both companies and CARE will sell us 300,000 credits at $4 each, and Kelp the Climate will help us get the remaining $100,000 for $8 apiece. At the end of the day, after we buy all of our carbon credits, we end up paying out about $2 million. Our carbon credits allow us to avoid the fine, and the climate negative companies get a payday to keep funding their climate efforts, and everyone moves on to the next year. The next year we know that we should do everything that we can to reduce our emissions, or else we will end up in an even worse place this year, because now our allowance is only 900,000 tons. So there you go, carbon markets in a nutshell. We know that throughout the years, there have been major problems in these markets, and they almost never work exactly how they're intended to. There have been instances of fraud, companies supposedly selling carbon credits that they didn't actually produce, and there have also been tons of instances of double-counting carbon credits, once when they're created and again when they're sold for someone else to use, which artificially doubles the impact of that credit without actually doing any good. Article 6 of the Glasgow Climate Pact is concerned with further refining global carbon markets so that they can work better as intended and seeks to solve three big issues that we've seen over the years. The first of these issues is who creates carbon credits the legitimacy of carbon negative entities, and how we track that. The next problem is how much each credit is worth, and the last is proper carbon accounting. Now who creates carbon credits has been a major problem mostly because of the lack of organization. There hasn't been enough oversight to ensure that those who claim to be carbon negative actually are. It's extremely difficult to track every instance of emissions in a company's work which is why establishing dedicated organizations to tracking carbon credit producers is something that will be coming into play as we act on the Glasgow Agreement. How much each credit is worth has been a problem, because even though we have established the value of carbon credits, that value is still extraordinarily low, usually costing between $1 and $10 per ton. When you're buying millions of credits, that can add up, But as it is now, heavy polluters like oil and gas companies are simply paying out to anyone who is offering carbon credits because it's still so much cheaper than actually changing their business model or accepting that huge fine. In some ways that's a good thing because it ends up paying carbon negative companies for their work, but it's ultimately not what we're looking for. The point of carbon markets is to make significant emission reductions year by year And that simply won't happen if the obvious choice of large polluters is to simply buy more carbon credits to make up for it. Through the Glasgow Agreement, the intent is to increase carbon pricing so that companies are more incentivized to make meaningful changes to their business practices, then clean up the excess using carbon credits when needed. And finally, proper carbon accounting. Turning this into a global, multi-billion dollar marketplace is going to require a lot more administration work and better accounting practices so that we can keep better track of what is actually going on and act accordingly. As of now, the global system is fairly disorganized, relying way too much on honesty and periodic check-ins. So we are making progress, especially with the Glasgow pact in hand It's plausible that we may be able to establish a functional international trading market within the next decade. Now we have to really consider what exactly that means for us. I have to preface this next section by saying that there are many, many factors that will play into the ultimate success or failure of these global carbon markets. That being said, I don't know what all of those factors are, but it seems to me like there are two different possible outcomes that we could see if we are able to get these trading systems running properly. The first outcome is the idyllic outcome, the one that we're hoping for above all else. In this scenario, the goals of the Glasgow Pact come into play and we establish a solid foundation for global carbon trading. Following that, because of the new regulations, carbon credit producers are vetted and trusted, we design an accounting system capable of keeping track of all of these credits worldwide, and carbon credits have secured their role as an expensive, last-ditch effort to meet carbon caps. In this ideal world, heavy-polluting companies would be forced to change their business practices and seek more sustainable means of production, or else they will be faced with a choice between expensive carbon offsets or a hefty fine. All of this will result in exactly what we're looking for the corporations with the most power making giant steps toward renewable energy and sustainability. All told, the likelihood of everything working out that well is almost zero. The worst case scenario, the other side of the coin, looks like this. The Glasgow Pact arrangements either don't amount to anything, or do amount to some new regulations, but those regulations are poorly enforced, so it doesn't really matter anyway. The system remains much the same as it is now disorganized, difficult to keep track of, and without providing any real incentive to change. In this scenario, instead of providing a powerful incentive to move towards sustainability, we will have provided heavy emitters a way out of their regulations. Instead of changing business practices, large corporations will instead purchase mass amounts of carbon offsets, which may or may not actually be legitimate, for quite cheap and then continue business as usual. In essence, these companies will have sold off their accountability to climate regulations to someone else to deal with, while they make no effort to change their practices to actually have any positive impact on climate change. The likelihood of this scenario playing out is also, fortunately, quite low. The public awareness and the global push for climate action is happening too quickly and aggressively to allow for such a colossal failure to happen. Instead of either of these polar opposite scenarios occurring, we will probably end up somewhere in the middle. The Glasgow Climate Pact will almost certainly materialize in some form or another, and help solidify the existing carbon trading system, and coupled with the rise in carbon offset pricing, this should lead to some businesses changing the way they do things in order to comply with regulation and avoid extra costs. Carbon offset purchases will fund carbon negative projects like direct air capture and to ultimately aid in climate action. At the same time, there will still be some number of corporations, most of all fossil fuel companies, that simply will not change their practices and will instead purchase carbon credits on a larger scale, which is, yeah, not ideal because they're still polluting, but at least that money will go to sustainable companies. The worst offenders will be those few who refuse to spend their money on carbon offsets and will instead allocate all of their extra funds to lobbying politicians for changes in policy or simply paying the fines for excess emissions. These companies ultimately avoid their regulation and they don't even pay their fair share to the people that are trying to have a positive impact on climate change. At this point, there is still no telling exactly how it will work out there's still too many undetermined factors to work out first. What we do know is that there is potential here. Tons of potential. There is the potential to give greenhouse gas emissions a price, and by doing so, force change in every single sector around the world. There is also the potential to squander any progress that we've made by allowing heavy emitters to escape regulation and paying their way out with carbon offsets. The most important thing that we must remember as we continue to develop better local, national, and international climate legislation is to be vigilant and hold your representatives accountable. We must speak up and let it be known that climate action is important to us on every level of government, and if our representatives will not speak on behalf of climate, then they will not speak on behalf of us, and they will be replaced. Like it or not, we are in the final push for climate change. This is it. If we do not continue to accelerate climate efforts and get better at mitigating our impact on our planet every day, we will run out of time. We don't have the luxury of waiting for someone else to take care of it. We must act. We must act aggressively, and we have to do it now. Alright, that was a long one. If you're still here, thank you so much for sticking through this episode. It was so fun to create this one, and a great way to end off the season, so I hope you enjoyed it. That is the official end of Season 2. What an absolute blast of a season. So much has happened, I've learned so much personally, and it has really been a lot of fun. As I said at the start of the episode, we will be taking off a few months from releasing weekly episodes, but when we return, there will be a couple of exciting changes to the show. We are already beginning the production of Season 3, and it's clear that it's going to be a bit shorter of a season, but due to popular demand, we will be taking a new approach and talking through the story of Iceland. We will take you through the journey of Iceland, from a country reliant on imported fossil fuels to the culture and industry rooted in the sustainability that we see today. I'm super excited about the next season already. Iceland has absolutely fascinated me for years from their history and culture all the way through to their technology and industry today. To stay up to date with the show, I want to recommend one more time that you visit the show notes or our website and join our free email newsletter. You'll get an email every time a new episode comes out, and also whenever we feel like there's something important that you should know without creating an entire episode on it. The newsletter is the best way to stay up to date with the show, and it's super easy to join, so please check that out. And finally, before we end this season, we have one more segment before we close out for the last time. Whenever I drive anywhere, I drive a gas-powered car. Don't yell at me. I know. I talk about how important climate change is, but I drive a gas-powered car. I am well aware of the irony. I'm also young, and at this point, I can't afford an electric car. As soon as I can, I will buy one, but at this point, I'm not there, which I think is a pretty similar situation for a lot of people. So with that in mind, whenever I drive, I do my very best to be as efficient as possible. I don't accelerate quickly, I coast to a stop whenever I can instead of accelerating and then braking, that kind of thing. It's almost like a game, it's something else to focus on while driving. But I've never actually looked up the most efficient way to drive, so that's what I'm going to talk about now. So here's what I found. First of all, the most efficient speed that most cars run at is somewhere between 40 and 80 kilometers per hour. Any slower than that and more energy is being consumed, not actually moving the car, but instead running fans, monitors, and all the other peripheral systems of a vehicle. Any faster than 80 kilometers an hour and fuel efficiency gets much worse, much faster and it actually turns out that some of the things that I was already doing are on the list of ways to drive more efficiently. Coast to decelerate, and accelerate slowly. One thing I hadn't really thought about was to keep a steady speed. As you accelerate, a car requires more fuel than maintaining its speed. I knew that already, which is why I always try to accelerate slowly, but I never really applied that to the rest of my driving. So maybe cruise control is a good option for saving fuel and protecting the climate too. And finally, there are the typical tips, carpool, remove roof racks for better aerodynamic efficiency, don't idle, roll your windows down instead of using AC, and keep your tires inflated to reduce road friction. Some of these things you probably knew already, but it was still interesting to get an official list on how to drive the most efficient, and now I can be confident that conscious driving actually can reduce fuel and emissions costs by a meaningful amount. So next time you go out, just see if you can pay a little more attention to how you're driving and see if you can make it just a little bit better. Well, I guess I'm out of time. I can't put it off anymore. Anyways, thank you so much again for an amazing season two. This has been a great experience. Can't wait to come back for season three. It has been quite a ride. I can't wait to keep it going. Stay innovative. I'll see you next time.